Folk City is a new publication just released this year featuring New York and the American folk music revival authored by Stephen Petrus and Ronald D. Cohen. And on the phone with me is Stephen Petrus. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Now, this is such an incredible project. I am so impressed by the, the depth of information you have here on, the, on folk music in America. What inspired you to start this project? Michael, I joined the Museum of the City of New York in 2012, and during the interview process, you know, I had my Ph.D. from the City University of New York Graduate Center in History. I had written a political and cultural history of Greenwich Village in the 50s and 60s. During the interview, the museum director told me that in the pipeline, there was an exhibition on the folk music revival in the 50s and the 60s. And I said, aha, you know, I've done research on that subject. I have a background in it. I was hired to do this postdoctoral fellowship at the museum. And I really spearheaded the project, the exhibition, and the accompanying book. So with the support of the museum and you know, many others, I began to do research for an exhibition. I structured the exhibition, drew up the proposal, what will be the purpose, what's the objective, and along with that, the book, too. It took about two and a half years to complete the whole project, the book and the exhibition, and it's just been really thrilling. Um, both came out in June. The exhibition's on view until January 9th. The book's received critical acclaim in major media outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So it's just been a real labor of love for me these last two and a half, three years. Well, congratulations. It, it seems like the definitive book on American folk music. Let's start not with the revival, but where was the original folk scene? Well, the revival refers, of course, to this surge of new interest in folk music in the 1950s and 60s. And it looked back to uh, earlier periods of American history, going back to the 19th century, the 18th century. And it, it really, I think, this surge of interest began to increase significantly in the 1930s with the work of folklorists like John and Alan Lomax, father and son, who were traveling around the country, supported by the Library of Congress, recording traditional songs with the latest recording equipment. And... They felt that rural culture was in decline, the country's becoming increasingly urban and industrial, and radio was becoming dominant form of mass culture, making songs more homogeneous, kind of erasing regional dialects of music. And they felt a sense of urgency to record traditional songs in places like the Mississippi Delta, the Piedmont region of the Carolinas, Florida, the Texas Hill Country, and they ultimately recorded about 10,000 songs for the Library of Congress to preserve part of our cultural heritage. And many uh, people in, in folk music looked back at those recordings, and it really, I think, generated new interest by the 50s and 60s. So the revival in the mid-20th century really looked back at American culture and looked at music as one element of our customs. And uh, I think it really starts around that time. Um, the Lomaxes, of course, were critical figures in this. Were the Lomaxes, you said, the Library of Congress, that's Washington, D.C. What's the relationship yes. with Greenwich Village? Alan Lomax, the son, would move to New York. He would start a radio show there, and he would be part of a budding folk music community, and he would introduce a lot of that music that he'd recorded on these cross-country trips to people in New York through his radio show, 
through his personal and artistic network. John Lomax's father also connected to New York intimately, although he was born in Mississippi and grew up in Texas. He brought Lead Belly, a singer that an African-American singer from Louisiana who they had, quote, discovered in jail on one of their field recording trips, brought him to New York, and Lead Belly was the seminal figure. So the network between D.C. and New York, you know, was intimate through the Lomaxes. And again, a lot of their music from the Library of Congress was, quote, discovered by New Yorkers in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. There's another fascinating part of your book. You go into details. Speaking of Lead Belly and John Lomax, the relationship there was kind of interesting because while Lead Belly did go to New York and become a semi-celebrity, John Lomax is the one who really profited from that relationship. Yes, John Lomax and Alan again, first encountered Lead Belly in 1933 in Angola prison and were just astonished at his repertoire. Hootie Ledbetter, known as Lead Belly, knew hundreds of songs from his trips in the deep south, Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi, ultimately released from prison in 34, brought to New York in 35. He was a figure that John Lomax considered to be pure and authentic. and He wanted to introduce New Yorkers to Lead Belly, and not just New Yorkers, Northeastern audiences in general. And he certainly benefited from that relationship, John Lomax, on the one hand, but Lead Belly benefited from the relationship as well. Lead Belly would never have been known had it not been for the Lomaxes. And don't get me wrong, Lead Belly did not profit financially much. Uh, He lived until 1949, but he did record for certain labels in the city in the 30s and 40s. He worked with Mo Ash at Ash Records, for example. But tragically, he died in poverty in 1949, but some of the songs associated with him would become huge hits during the uh, commercial boom of the revival, like Goodnight Irene by the Weavers, for example. It's an interesting period of time because a lot of those rural songs... Uh, were credited to the Lomaxes, and all they did was mm-hmm. record them. That's right, that's right. You know, people do, do not realize just the long history of these songs, and in many cases, Michael, we don't even know the original author of these songs. I mean, these songs, in a very general way, were thought to belong to the community. They were passed down from generation to generation, going back to the 19th century, maybe even before to the colonial era. And that's part of the folk process, the transmission. And in the meantime, the lyrics were modified, the melodic arrangements changed, the songs used for different purposes. Songs like We Shall Overcome had, you know, of course, the anthem of the civil rights movement had a long history going back at least to the early 1900s, the the lyrics, but changed in different contexts, used for different reasons. So, yes, you know, sometimes the songs were credited to the Lomaxes, simply because the original author was unknown. And um, again, you know, if not for them, those songs might have become extinct. You know, again, they have felt a sense of urgency that we need to record this. This is part of our identity as Americans. The songs give us a window into who we are, what our concerns were. So we're really grateful to them for their for their work. I'm speaking with Stephen Petrus. He's co-author of the book Folk City, New York and the American Folk Music Revival. You begin the book in 1940 at a concert in, uh, is it Carnegie Hall? The Forest Theater. The Forest Theater. Mm -hmm. Throughout the book, you you go into detail about different concerts that were held in the city and how they brought folk music together. 
it's just wonderful reading how this, these even existed, these concerts. Tell me about that concert that Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger uh, yeah. experienced. It's really a pivotal moment, Michael. 1940, Woody Guthrie had just arrived to New York about a month before uh, the concerts in March. He'd arrived in February by way of California. Of course, Woody Guthrie, the Dust Bowl troubadour, born and raised in Oklahoma, moved to Texas. His family, devastated by the Dust Bowl in the mid-1930s, went out west like so many other Okies, seeking employment in California. And he learned the songs of the Okies on the way. His music, of course, reflected their concerns, was very sympathetic to them. After all, he was part of that migration. Came to New York at the urge of the actor and activist Will Gear, and quickly uh, was involved in this concert, the Grapes of Wrath fundraiser. Remember, the John Steinbeck novel had appeared in 1939. The John Ford film, based on the novel, had just opened and this concert was a fundraiser, a fundraiser for a progressive cause for the displaced farmers out in California. And the lineup was just astonishing. And I've got a, a flyer of the concert in the exhibition, included Woody Guthrie, the young Pete Seeger, a Harvard dropout, Aunt Molly Jackson, Lead Belly, Alan Lomax, Will Gear, many others. And it really helped establish New York as a site where Great talent from all over the country would come, converge, often for progressive causes. So we're seeing the connection between music and activism. And particularly special here, this is the first time that Woody Guthrie met Pete Seeger. And of course, they were two titanic figures in the folk music revival, seminal figures, influenced generations of folk singers. Woody really stole the show that night. He was very charismatic on stage, really brilliant, captivated the audience. By contrast, Pete, he was a little nervous, maybe 19 or 20 years old at the time, got some polite applause, but was really mesmerized by Woody. And the two developed a friendship really quickly. They learned from each other, collaborated. And that was the thing about New York. And one thing about the book is that we show that people are coming from all over the country to New York to find their artistic fulfillment and, you know, try to achieve their political goals. And it was just a tremendous convergence of um, great figures. Was It wasn't just a convergence of folk music. It was a convergence of all artists. That's right. Artists with different backgrounds from different regions, different regional dialects. And one of the great objects in the exhibition is a letter written by Woody Guthrie to WNYC radio show host Henrietta Yurchenko about Lead Belly. And he's pointing out, I'm from Oklahoma. I represent a certain kind of uh, musical tradition. I'm, I've just met Lead Belly from Louisiana. He sings the blues. He sings other form cowboy ballads. And I'm learning from him. He's learning from me. It's varieties of musical genres coming together, mixing, developing, and synthesizing into something new. And I think that's really one of the beauties of the story is people influencing each other and competing with each other and learning and establishing this small community. The community also included communal houses, because I'm fascinated about the way the almanac singers <laughs> evolved into the weavers. Absolutely, Michael. They were formed in 1941, lasted until 1943 during the war years. The almanac singers were the first modern urban folk group. And as you say, it was a loose collective based on West 10th Street in Greenwich Village, 
They played casually together. Performers came and went. But the core of the Almanacs consisted of Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Millard Lampell, Lee Hayes, Sis Cunningham from Oklahoma. And in a sentence, they wanted to start a singing union movement. And so, again, we see the convergence of leftist politics and music to fuel the labor movement in the early 40s. And they were also very much anti-fascist. In fact, their music really reflected the ideas of the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, at first, they were anti-war, but then Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June 41, and the Almanacs became pro-war in support of the Red Army. It's just a very interesting mix with the Almanacs and an informal, casual way of playing, performing, but they would disband in 43. Many members joined the army or worked in the war industries out in Detroit. But again, they kind of formed the core of the Weavers who would form in 1948, a few years after the war. Did the Weavers, did they go after a commercial sound? Did they really want to make money? At first, no. You know, they were very respectful folk singers, practitioners of folk music is how they described them, consisting of Keith Seeger, Lee Hayes, Fred Hellerman, and Ronnie Gilbert, a quartet. You know, I think Pete realized in one conversation that they needed to be relevant, and if they continue to shun the commercial realm and nightclubs, they're going to be obscure. So they overcame their resistance to, quote, being commercial, and they embraced it. They wore formal attire. They played in major nightclubs. They got a contract with Decca Records, which was huge in the late 1940s, a major national label toward the nation, achieved major hits with Goodnight Irene, Senna, 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 an Israeli soldier song. So it was an interesting evolution how they came to embrace it. They, you know, made some compromises by, you know, making their music a little more palatable to larger audiences, but still being respectful to the original music. I seem to recall Pete Seeger quit the band when he, he didn't want to do a cigarette commercial. and he. <laughs> That's right, that's right. And it just shows how principled Pete Seeger was. He quit the band in 1957 for that reason, but he did play occasionally with them. The Weavers played on and off to about 1980. And a remarkable history. Again, they really demonstrated, Michael, the potential for the commercial success for folk music in the early 50s, but they also showed the backlash of Red Scare politics, McCarthyism in the early 50s, you know, Pete was investigated in particular, had been a member of the Communist Party in the 1940s. The Weavers lost their DECA contract. They lost radio time. Concerts were canceled. They disbanded by 52-53, but re would reunite in 55. But as you say, that the band evolved with Pete leaving in 57. I'm speaking with Stephen Petrus, co-author of Folk City, New York and the American Folk Music Revival. There was always a uh, kind of a a fight or an argument between authentic traditionalists and, I guess, urban contemporary fusion artists. And and I guess Alan Lomax and those folks wanted to keep folk music traditional and, and get kind of keep the New York City folk singers out of traditional music. Yeah, there was always tension, Michael, between traditional, quote, authentic performers and pop commercial performers and who could be authentic and what did it mean to be authentic. And really that definition of authenticity in New York, I think, evolved from the 30s 
throughout the 60s. It was always a concern, but many purists were, became particularly upset, purists who had connections to the left, especially in the 30s, that by the late 50s and 60s, these major record companies and even television shows like the show Who and Annie on ABC in 1963, they're taking the people's music and they're exploiting it and they're cashing in on it. You know, and and these people like the Chad Mitchell Trio and the Limelighters are not true authentic folk singers. People like Mississippi John Hurt, Clarence Ashley, Doc Boggs, they really represent authentic folk singers. They come from the particular regions and are organically connected to the music. And so in New York, you know, Lomax is very interesting. Alan, you mentioned him. On the one hand, he wanted to disseminate folk music as much as possible. He had his radio show. He sponsored concerts, engaged in other endeavors. But he he was very anti-commercial current trends. So even like the shift to like electric guitar in 64, 65, you know, he didn't appreciate that change. But he did want to enlighten the country about our musical heritage. So kind of represents... Uh, an interesting figure. But what did it mean to be authentic? I think it was just how, you know, it could relate to your class identity, your regional identity, your race, your performance style, your purpose, your lyrical content, how you presented yourself on stage. You could kind of get a sense of who, you know, what the distinctions were, but it was always a little slippery. The book is filled with so much detail about the difference between urban and contemporary and and traditional folk music, but you touched on the politics, and Mm -hmm. politics was always a part of the folk music scene in Greenwich Village, and what I found interesting, as much as the civil rights and as much as the Vietnam War, there was so much politics going on within the city. Yes, really true. You know, at the local level, at the national level, and Michael, uh, at the local level, in the neighborhood Greenwich Village, a great space to play folk music was Washington Square Park in the heart of Greenwich Village. Sunday afternoon, you would bring your banjo, your fiddle, guitar, auto harp, dulcimer down to the park, play with like-minded individuals. It was very non-professional and amateurish scene. With the boom of the revival beginning around 1958, some say ignited by the Kingston Trio song Tom Dooley, the crowds really swelled in the park. By the way, you needed a permit to play in the park from the park's commissioner, who in the late 50s was Robert Moses and the early 60s was Newbold Morris. You would get the permit and then play from around 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock. The crowds, according to Newbold Morris in 1961, were too big and taxing the park's resources and attracting undesirables, quote-unquote, to the neighborhood. And he banned folk singing in Washington Square Park in 1961. And it led to a six-week protest movement. The Right to Sing Committee formed, staged these colorful protests every weekend. Ultimately, the mayor of New York, Robert Wagner, repealed the ban but even within the community, it generated controversy, and people debated what's appropriate for public space, who's entitled to play here, what kind of activity should we conduct in our parks. And so folk music was very much a part of that. Because it's in Greenwich Village, you have all these people involved in the protests who are well-known, famous folk singers and personalities. Yes. And one of the earliest people who had a hit who really made a lot of money was Harry Belafonte. 
Calypso really took off in this country, and, and New York City, I guess, was the center of it. You're absolutely right. And Belafonte had grown up in uh, both the West Indies and in Harlem. And in, in 1955, Michael, there was a debate. Who is more popular, Elvis or Belafonte? Which musical genre will become dominant and enduring, rock and roll or calypso? He did his rendition of Deo, the Banana Boat song, and seemed to be on the cover of so many different major national magazines. He was a sex symbol. He was an activist, became a confidant of Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement. But indeed, Calypso did fade from the national picture by the late 1950s. And to some degree, rock and roll did too. You know, Elvis joined the Army, and there were scandals engulfing rock and roll, and I, I think that really helped create a gap, and folk music in some ways would fill that gap by the late 50s. But Belafonte and Calypso really had a, had a moment of national and international prominence in the mid-1950s. And again, another charismatic performer, dynamic on stage, very handsome, very appealing to a large national audience. Let, let me just throw some names out you, and you tell me about their relationship to the city. Let's start with Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who's also on the cover of your book with Bob Dylan. Yes. Real name, Elliot Adnapas, of course, became Ramblin' Jack Elliott. According to Ramblin' Jack, he was born on a 15,000-acre ranch in Flatbush, Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I haven't seen this ranch. I live in Brooklyn, so I'm, I'm still looking for it. But, you know, growing up, he, he embraced the music of Woody Guthrie, his idol. He went to the rodeo in Madison Square Garden. And during his college years, really immersed himself in the music of the Western Plains, in particular Woody Guthrie, and changed his name, adopted this Western persona. He was called Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Odetta gave him that nickname because he, he talked on and on and on. <laughs> he was Ramblin', hence the nickname. And he himself really became a mentor to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan learned most about Woody through Ramblin' Jack, because by the time that Dylan arrived in the city in 1961, Woody was ill with Huntington's Korea. So Dylan did meet Woody, but he really learned most of the stuff he knew through Ramblin' Jack. Well, so this middle-class yeah. Jewish uh, doctor's son went over to England with his folk music right. knowledge, came back to Greenwich Village, why was he such a celebrity when he returned? Well, he was in the U.K. from the mid-50s to around the early 60s. He did really well. He was charismatic on stage. He was a brilliant interpreter of Woody. You know, so he had that persona. He had that swagger. He had that stage presence. He, he didn't really pursue commercial endeavors. He wasn't... Um, you know, really keen on becoming a national star like the Kingston Trio or these other pop folk groups where even Peter, Paul, and Mary. But his style, his demeanor, his respect of the music, again, his re he reinvented himself. And, and that was so fascinating. And I think New York was really welcomed that, too. He was a native New Yorker. But how he reinvented himself and became someone different, almost literally changing his name, changing his persona, and was just a seminal figure, Ramblin' Jack. In the 1960s, Bob Dylan came in. Is that when it all changed? Well, he was really a pivotal figure in so many ways, Michael, talking about the changes in the early 60s, the advent of the singer-songwriter. Because keep in mind, throughout most of the 50s, 
most folk singers were interpreters of traditional ballads. In other words, you might go back and listen to the Lomax Field recordings or other old folk music, and you would interpret it in your own way. But with Dylan and others like Tom Paxton and Phil Oakes, they really helped ignite the singer-songwriter trend, which really was nurtured in Greenwich Village. Write your own music and not just interpret other music like the New Lost City Ramblers would, for example. In that regard, yes. And of course, his lyrics stopped Americans in their tracks. His songs really reflected the tumult of the early 60s, captured the mood of a nation in the midst of great social change, whether it was blowing in the wind or the times they are a-changing, strong critiques of the military-industrial society with masters of war, and he would evolve and become much more introspective, too. And that led to another change by 1964, 1965. He's really pushing himself away from the political side of folk music and writing songs where the lyrics are a bit surreal and introspective and personal. And that's going to lead to another kind of singer-songwriter by the late 60s. People like Leonard Cohn and Van Morrison weren't so political, but much more lyrical and introspective in their own songs, Simon and Garfunkel, too. I'm speaking with Stephen Petrus, co-author of Folk City, a brand-new publication talking about New York and the American folk music revival. Another detail I really like about your book is that I miss the folk music revival by a decade or so, and I've always wanted to see what it was like living in that time, going from club to club and hearing the folk singers play. There were about 20 clubs in the area that didn't even pay the folk acts. They had baskets that they passed around. (laughs) That's right. And that's the critical point, Michael, is that why New York and one big reason that New York became the epicenter of the nationwide folk music revival, performance opportunities, particularly in Greenwich Village in the early 60s, the concentration of some 20 coffee houses, venues where you could play right around Washington Square Park on Bleecker Street and McDougal Street. But these were more than just places to play. These were places where you a young folk singer from wherever in the nation could develop a style, hone your skills, test out new material, see if you can hold an audience's attention. Maybe, maybe if you're lucky, there's a manager in the audience, someone like Harold Leventhal or Albert Grossman, a talent scout. If you're really lucky, maybe Robert Shelton of the New York Times would review you like he did for Bob Dylan in September 1961, and that helped launched Dylan's career, helped get him a Columbia record contract. So there's a certain dynamic quality about these venues, all concentrated, and they helped enable people to meet each other. I see you play on Thursday night, maybe I'm in the audience, and introduce myself after your set and invite you to my set on Saturday night at another venue around the corner. So personal relationships are established, artistic relationships, social relationships, Meanwhile, there are other artistic movements flourishing in the village at the same time in theater, in literature, in film, and dance. So there was a real license to experiment in the village at that time and to be bold and to challenge convention. So Dylan arrives in this milieu and really helps ride this and pushes it forward. It's about his talent, his ambition, but also the time and place. And these venues are a really critical part of the book. When Dylan comes on the scene, the political folk music is still quite active. In fact, there's a magazine that was started just devoted to political folk music. Absolutely. 
The new one established in 1962 was called Broadside. This is for young singer-songwriters, people uh, like Bob Dylan, Phil Oaks, Tom Paxton, Len Chandler, Richard Farina, to contribute their songs to this mimeographed magazine started by Agnes Cunningham and Gordon Friesen in their Upper West Side apartment. And this magazine would distribute these the songs of this new up-and-coming generation who probably wouldn't have been published otherwise. And a lot of their songs were published in Broadside before they were released on, on albums. The other magazine was more established from 1950. It was called Sing Out, started by Erwin Silber, Alan Lomax, and Pete Seeger. It blended politics and music, left politics, published civil rights songs, anti-war songs, editorials in the magazine helped stimulate debates about folk music. Erwin Silber, very provocative, critical of the Weavers for playing songs of African-Americans, but there was no African-American in the group. Critical of Dylan kind of abandoning political music and becoming more introspective, self-absorbed, is what he said. These great debates that were started in these magazines, not just the publication of the music, but what's the role of music in society, in our culture, in our political system? What can it do? Can it enhance our awareness about social problems and help us with social reform movements? So these magazines are, again, rooted in New York and, and very critical to the New York scene. Stephen Petras talking about the New York folk music scene. Speaking about publications and folk music, we'll skip ahead a, a couple decades. Broadside mm-hmm. has since ceased publication. Sing Out right. is still there. But there's mm-hmm. a, a new crowd of folk singers in the uh, 80s and 90s who start a new publication called Fast Folk at a, at a Greenwich Village. That's right. The scene sort of slowed down in the mid-60s as a result of the British invasion um, and, and rock and roll becoming dominant. But folk music never disappeared, of course. And there's a new surge of interest in the late 70s, early 80s. The fast folk movement started by people like Jack Hardy, based in Greenwich Village. They would put out a new magazine called Fast Folk and encourage young singer-songwriters in the neighborhood to submit their songs and there would be concerts in places like the Cornelia Street Cafe, albums also issued in conjunction with this monthly magazine. It's fascinating how we see a new surge of interest in people like Suzanne Vega, Sean Colvin, Lucy Kaplansky, Tracy Chapman, all emerged from this fast folk movement in the 80s and 90s. So again, it's kind of this do-it-yourself method. Sure, on some level it's commercial, but in another way it's let's get together, let's produce this magazine, publish our songs, circulate them, you know, release albums on independent labels, play small gigs. So it never really died out, even when Dylan went electric, quote unquote, but it, you know, it entered and evolved into new phases. Folk City is the new book. You also have personal stories throughout the book. Uh, had many people come forward since the book has been written that you wish you had included in the book? Yes, there's 13 personal recollections in this book. And as you suggest, I was very much interested in interspersing firsthand accounts in 500 words or so from participants, whether folk singers, managers, radio show hosts. I tried to make it comprehensive, but you could, of course you can never completely be comprehensive. But one person who did approach me was Dolores Dixon. And she's not well known, but she was a member of the New World 
singers in the early 1960s, uh, apparently briefly dated Bob Dylan. And the New World Singers was the first group to record Blown in the Winds. And uh, they also published it in Broadside Magazine. The New World Singers also went from New York to Mississippi to help with voter registration in the early 60s during the Civil Rights Movement. So they were also activists. Dolores' stories were so fascinating, and I regretted that I didn't have the chance to, to meet her while I was writing the book and to include her own recollection. But I did meet up with her ultimately after the exhibition opened, and she brought her group from the Bronx to the Museum of the City of New York, and we did a tour of the exhibition. She included some of her personal stories and anecdotes. Yeah, there were some things that slipped through the cracks, so I hope more books are written so we can even like gain more insight into this fascinating period of New York history, of national history, really. Is the exhibit at the Museum of New York still up? Yes. It's up until January 9th, and it's been doing really well. It's been reviewed extensively. Attendance has been wonderful. Really, it has exceeded expectations, Mike. What's your favorite exhibit at, at the museum? I, You know, my favorite display, I got original Dylan manuscripts, <laughs> uh, handwritten lyrics to Dylan's songs, Blown in the Wind, Masters of War, Maggie's Farm, and Mr. Tambourine Man. From a private collector, very affluent, I was introduced to him by uh, my contact at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. He called me up and said, I know this guy, he has tremendous Dylan memorabilia, and put us in touch. I went to his penthouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I, I gave him an overview of the exhibition, and he went to his vault and pulled out these manuscripts and plastic. For me, this was like the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> you know? To have these, like the original handwritten lyrics to these songs on paper, I was really even shaking. I was so, my jaw dropped. It was really astonishing. How did he get a hold of them? How did he do? Yeah. He, he purchased them in 2001 from another collector who had sold his collection to the Morgan Library in Midtown Manhattan. But this private collector purchased those four songs about 14 years ago. And they, they've really generated a lot of attention, and he's crossing out words and inserting other words. So you get a sense of his artistic process. And also with those four songs, too, you get a sense of his evolution from, quote, protest singer with Blown in the Wind and Masters of War to backing away from the protest movement with Maggie's Farm. I ain't going to work on Maggie's Farm no more. I'm not going to be a protest singer anymore. To Mr. Tambourine Man, where he's much more surreal and introspective. But there are so many. There are about 225 objects in the exhibition. The Lead Belly guitar, the Odetta guitar, a Judy Collins guitar, Phil Oak's cap, some really rich material from the, the venues and photographs, concert footage, videos, listening stations with songs. The exhibit is at the Museum of the City of New York through the beginning of January. The book is Folk City, which is available to everybody, co-written by my guest Stephen Petrus and Ronald D. Cohen, New York and the American Folk Music Revival, Folk City. Stephen, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Well, Michael, it was really a pleasure, and we very much appreciate all your years of great work. It was really an honor to be on your show. Oh, thank you, Stephen.